Well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21? As we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel, we come to now Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life before the cross. And he has spent the previous day in Jerusalem. At the end of the day, he went to uh, from there to Bethany, where he spent the night probably at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And... Um, it says in verse 17, he went to the city of Bethany after he had uh, ministered uh, all day in Jerusalem. He lodged there. Verse 18, now, in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also will say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. Now, to be honest with you guys, this passage has troubled me for a long time. You say, well, why? Well, because the two things contained in this passage um, don't go together, all right? I mean, the incident in verses 18 and 19, and then the principle Jesus teaches from the incident in verses 20 and 21, they don't seem like they go together. Now, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. But right now, let's just engage in a little observation of this whole cursing of the fig tree, all right? First of all, let me say this. Fig trees are very common in Israel, and they're valued not only for their fruit, but also for their shade. And when you're talking about a very arid, hot climate like Israel, shade trees are very important, especially for travelers and so on. But uh, you remember when Jesus called Nathaniel to be his disciple in John chapter 1, verse 48, uh, he was sitting under a fig tree. Uh, God promises all of us that in the kingdom age, we're not going to have to worry about anyone robbing us or hurting us. He says everyone will sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid. So I guess we're all going to own fig trees in the kingdom. I don't know. Good to know now, I guess. Um, but again, verses 18 and 19 give us the incident. Uh, and we read again, In the morning he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow in you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now Mark tells us that it didn't happen immediately, but took place over a 24-hour period. Matthew just kind of condenses it for brevity. But Mark tells us that, that Jesus cursed the fig tree. They went into the city, ministered, came back to Bethany to sleep. The next day on their way to Jerusalem, they passed the fig tree. It, was already, it had already withered and died. So that's the idea. But this whole idea, the whole thing on the face of it, it seems that Jesus is being kind of petty, even petulant. I mean, you know, especially when you further take into account what Mark records in his gospel. Let me read what Mark records. He says in Mark eleven thirteen, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he, Jesus, went to see if perhaps uh, he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Listen, for it was not the season for figs. Okay. I mean, if it wasn't the season for figs, then why did Jesus approach the fig tree looking for fruit and then curses it when he finds none? 
Doesn't seem very reasonable. Well, it's because of what Mark tells us. Jesus saw the fig tree from a distance, and he saw that it had leaves on it. Now, hold on there for a minute. From what I've been able to understand as I've studied this, fig trees produce two crops of figs throughout the year. The first crop starts in the spring when uh, little green figs appear on the branches of the fig tree. Uh, from what I understand, they're edible, but you wouldn't want to eat too many because you've got a stomachache, kind of like green apples. You can eat them to a certain degree, all right? Well, if left on the branches, then they will continue to ripen until June when they can be picked then and eaten. Now, the fig tree bears another crop then in the fall. Same idea, same process. The thing you need to understand, which is vital to the story, is that first of all come the green figs, which are then followed by the leaves, which the figs then ripen. So when Jesus saw that the fig tree had leaves on it, even though it was still a bit early in the season for figs, he assumed this tree had produced an early crop. And that's why he came to it looking for fruit. Now, the fact that Jesus curses this poor little fig tree was minding its own business by saying to it, let no fruit ever grow on you again, so that it immediately began to wither and die, has caused some people to think that Jesus here is uh, guilty of an immature outburst of temper. And while it is true this is the only miracle in Jesus' ministry, when he used his power to curse rather than bless and to destroy life rather than restore, those who level this criticism at Jesus, that this was a kind of a little outburst of immature temper, don't really know our Lord. Jesus is God. And God is never petty, petulant, never prone to immature outbursts of anger, ever. And even though the whole incident appears to be out of character for our Lord, listen, the key word is appears. Appears. I believe the point of this whole story is not to show how Jesus picked on this fig tree you know, and, and kills it for not bearing fruit when it wasn't even the season for figs. The whole point of the story was to teach a lesson to his disciples. A lesson using a fig tree as this one here to illustrate how that Israel was a fruitless nation and therefore God was going to judge it. The idea that God likened Israel to a fig tree is a very common metaphor in the Old Testament. We see it in numerous places, Jeremiah 8, 13, Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 and 16, and other places. And I believe that this whole thing was Jesus' way of using the fig tree to teach them a spiritual truth about what was coming upon the nation. Jesus had come to this fig tree looking for literal fruit the same way he had come to the nation of Israel a couple days earlier on Palm Sunday looking for spiritual fruit. We read in Zechariah 9, verse 9, how Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would eventually come to Israel riding on a donkey. And he would come looking to find the fruits of righteousness and saving faith in the nation. But what did Jesus actually find when he came riding into Jerusalem? He found a temple that was corrupt, the selling of, of, uh, of animals and, and exorbitant prices and the exchanging of money was all corrupt. That's why he called it a den of thieves. So he saw corruption in the temple and he saw unbelief in the nation because they rejected their own Messiah. When Jesus cursed the fig tree because it had leaves but no fruit, it was because it symbolized the nation of Israel, which had leaves. What do you mean? It had the outward form of religion. It had outward religious practices, which the temple was all about. 
but had no real fruit of salvation. In other words, the nation was full of hypocrisy and deception. Its leaders were like whitewashed tombs. And we've talked about this. This was Passover time. And during the three major feasts of the year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, because you had pilgrims coming from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate these major feasts, some of them had never been to Jerusalem their entire life or would never get there again. Maybe this was a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And of course, they were very excited, maybe saved up for years to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. If they inadvertently stepped on a tomb, they would be defiled and couldn't enter the temple area, couldn't observe the Passover. And so to keep that from happening, the uh, Jews in the area would, as a courtesy to these pilgrims, would whitewash the tomb so that every traveler would know, well, that's a tomb, and they would steer clear. Now, Jesus picked up on it and used it as a metaphor or an illustration of the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and Sadducees. He said, who were like whitewashed tombs, which means, he said, outside you look all holy and righteous. But like a tomb, on the inside you're full of corruption and defilement. And the same was true with the entire nation, so to speak. God had given the nation of Israel ample time to repent, to believe, and to begin to bring forth fruits of righteousness. In fact, Jesus had been conducting his ministry at this point for three and a half years before he had rode into the city of Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, uh, presenting himself as Messiah and King. I mean, the nation had enough time. He had done so many miracles by this time. John ends his gospel by saying that Jesus did so many miracles, I can't even record them all. But these I have recorded that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing have life in his name. So by this time, Jesus had worked so many miracles. He had preached so many times in so many different locations. The nation, if they had wanted to, could have repented easily, gotten their lives right with God, and begun to bear spiritual fruit. In fact, he used one parable in particular, in particular, to warn them that his ministry would be the last opportunity for them as a nation to get their lives right and begin to bring forth good fruit before it was cursed and destroyed by God. Turn to Luke 13. And let's read verses 6 to 9. Luke 13, starting in verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. Who is the landowner? God the Father. Who is the one tending the vineyard at this time where the, where the fig tree was? Jesus Christ. And he was trying to use the teaching of God. He was trying to use the truth of God to stimulate the nation, to realize, look, I'm your Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. Now, accept me, repent of your sins, and start bringing forth the fruit that God intended the nation to bring forth when he planted you in his vineyard in the first place. Now, I don't know if the people of Israel realized what Jesus Christ was saying there when he gave this parable. And he is basically saying, this is your last chance, Israel. My ministry is your last chance to get your lives right. Stop bearing this, just this leaves of religion, 
with no righteousness behind it, no real fruit at all. You're just going through the religious motions. This is your last opportunity to stop playing games with God, is what he was saying. My ministry is it. If you don't repent now, I mean, it's your last opportunity. But not only did the nation not start bringing forth good fruit, we know the Jewish leadership even had their own Messiah crucified as the ultimate act of evil and rebellion. This then brought the curse of God's judgment upon the nation, a judgment that would eventually be carried out 38 years after the crucifixion. In 70 AD, the Romans surrounded the city, and they um, set the, the temple on fire. They sacked the city. As the temple was set on fire, uh, there were Jews that took refuge in the temple area. They were rounded up and slaughtered, a million six hundred thousand in the nation total. But as they set the temple on fire, the gold in the ceiling of the temple melted, began to drip down in between the cracks of the stones. So to get at the gold, they disassembled the temple uh, rock by rock, throwing the rocks over into the Tropian Valley until there was not one stone left upon another until all was thrown down. The very thing Jesus Christ had prophesied would happen. All because you didn't know the day of your visitation, which was the day he rode into Jerusalem, uh, announcing himself to be their Messiah and King. They rejected him and then had him crucified the next day, or excuse me, four days later. And so in 70 AD, then the Romans destroyed the city, the temple, killed a million six hundred thousand Jews. The rest were scattered. The nation of Israel ceased to be a nation at that time. They were uprooted from the land, even as Jesus had said they would be. Now Mark's gospel notes that he cursed the fig tree and it withered from the roots up. It's important because it signifies the nation of Israel would also wither from the roots up. In other words, when the roots are dead, uh, there's no more life there. It can't regenerate itself. You can cut down a, a tree at a stump and some of the uh, life energy will begin to bring forth new branches. The fact that it withered from the roots meant the nation was going to be dead, completely dead. What do you do with something that's completely dead like a tree? You uproot it and cast it away. And that's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. Removed from their land, the nation was completely dead, would remain dead until the prophecy, which I'm not going to get into this morning, it's too involved, until the prophecy in Ezekiel 38 could be fulfilled. Remember how that God showed Ezekiel a vision of a valley full of dry bones? Dry bones indicating that these bodies had been dead for a very long time. And Ezekiel, the Lord says, Ezekiel, what are these bones? Ezekiel says, Lord, I don't know. You tell me. All right. He says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They are going to be scattered someday. The nation will be dead. And they will remain a dead nation for many years. Until at one point, I regather them back in their land. And Ezekiel saw how the bones began to rattle. Okay, Came together ankle bone with the foot bone and the knee bone or whatever the bones are, shin bone. And Anyways, these, these bones came together and formed skeletons. And the skeletons then began to grow muscle and flesh upon themselves, and they stood up. And this signified that the nation would be resurrected. That happened, guys. Now, for many, many centuries, Christians and Bible prophecy experts believe that this had to be symbolic. No nation has ever been out of its land for, for two centuries, ever to be regathered, excuse me, uh, two millennia, uh, to be regathered and become a nation again. It has to be spiritual. It can't be literal. But on May 14, 1948, God showed the world that he was speaking literally when the modern state of Israel was reborn. Israel was a nation once again. 
you know. That was an exciting moment for Israel, but also for Christians around the world because they begin to realize, what else has God said that was literal and I'm taking spiritually, all right? So it was a renewed interest in Bible prophecy and the Word of God in general. Um, but God said that, that they would be a nation again. Now, we must keep in mind that unbelieving Israel will forever be fruitless. There, there is always going to be uh, a, a, a whole bunch of secular, unbelieving Jews. Even Israel today is still as a nation, but they're a secular nation. And that was the idea when these bones came together and they stood upright, okay? And, and uh, it says that, uh, that they stood up, but there was no breath in them. Breath, ruach, the breath of God. They were not a spiritual nation. They were uh, alive, but not spiritually alive. And that's exactly what we see today. Israel, for the most part, is a secular nation. We do see some Messianic Jews in the land of Israel. We have a missionary ourselves from our church who lives there and ministers to Jewish people. But there's always going to be unbelieving Jews, and they will never bear fruit. That's why Jesus said to the fig tree, let no fruit ever grow on you again. But a remnant will get saved after the rapture. Remember how the book of Revelation talks about God is going to save 144,000 Jews. After we're gone, we're in heaven, the church is gone. Okay? God turns again his face back to Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. He saves 144,000 Jews, seals them with the mark of God in their forehead, protecting them against the Antichrist, and he breathes into these guys the breath of God in the sense that they become Paul the Apostles. They lead millions and millions and millions to Christ during the tribulation period. But this application, this whole fig tree, having leaves but no fruit, having a form of godliness, uh, outward show of religion but no real righteousness, this whole thing can be applied to the vast number of people in our country who go to church every Sunday, who are maybe baptized and confirmed and, and go through the rituals of their church or their denomination. Uh, they, they come to church maybe regularly. Maybe they, they come to church every, I know some people that go to church every day of the week but are not real Christians. Because folks, going into church doesn't make you a Christian anymore. You've heard it, right? Then going into a garage makes you a car. Or going into a bakery makes you a bagel. Whatever you want, you know. It doesn't matter that a person goes to church. That doesn't have anything to do with what's going on inside their heart. There are a lot of people that manifest a form of godliness. In fact, Paul says it's going to get worse and worse as we get closer to Jesus' return. More and more people would have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. In other words, there would be churchgoers, spiritually minded people, but would not know Jesus Christ. Now, I won't have you turn to it. You can check it out later yourself in Matthew 13, Mark 4. But Jesus gave a very specific parable that addressed this very issue. We call it the parable of the sower, where he said, A certain man went out to sow seed in his field. The seed represents the word of God or the gospel. And as he broadcast, which is what the word means, he took, they would sling the bag of seed over their shoulders, and they would just grab handfuls, and they would walk down the furrows, and they would just broadcast this seed wasn't an exact science obviously the seed went everywhere most of it went under your field but jesus says the man did that uh, the seed fell on four different types of soil which he later on unexplains are four different types of hearts the first soil was the hard soil that was uh, the pathway between the fields some seed was 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 uh, was inevitable some would fall on this very hard soil couldn't penetrate it was like concrete birds would eventually come and eat it and just 
take it right off the soil. Some of the seed, he said, fell on shallow places. This would be dirt that had limest a limestone bedrock not too far from the surface of the soil. The seed would hit the soil, would, would uh, germinate, the, the uh, roots would go down only so far, hit the limestone shelf, all the growing power would be shot, we directed upward, and this plant would dwarf the others around it. But when the sun came up, again, very hot climate in Israel, the sun came up, became hot, well, these roots couldn't go deep enough to get moisture, so they would, the plants would wither and die. Some seed, he said, fell on thorny places, where you had uh, weeds that really had a, had a foothold in that piece of ground. And the, the seeds would germinate, but as they grew, they were competing with the, with the weeds or the thorns. Uh, and, of course, a plant that's indigenous to a piece of ground is always stronger than one that's cultivated into it. So eventually, the thorns would choke out this uh, plant, and it would never come to fruit. Then you had, of course, the seed that fell on good soil and bore fruit a 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, fortunately, we don't have to guess what this parable is all about, because later on, the disciples asked Jesus about it. They said, Lord, what about this parable of the sower? Can you explain it to us? He said, okay. He said, the seed is the word. The sower is anybody who really sows and spreads the gospel. Any one of us, okay? And as they go forth into the world to share the gospel, some of the seed falls on hard hearts, hard soil. These are the people that are just flat out, uh, you know, they, they want nothing to do with God. They're atheists, they're agnostics. Um, they don't pretend to be Christians. They don't go to church. They're flat out. They're just straight with you. Okay, they don't want God, and so uh, the gospel hits their heart. It's, their heart is so hard, it can't penetrate. And eventually the devil just comes and snatches it away. The last soil, the good soil, is a good heart. They hear the word of God, and they accept Christ, and they bring forth all kinds of fruit. That's obvious, right? The first soil, the last soil, those are pretty straightforward, aren't they? It's the two middle soils that are the problem and have given commentators fits over the years. And people have come away with different interpretations. The two other soils, okay, are people that receive the word, but only superficially, okay? The first shallow soil, Jesus said, this person hears the word and receives it with great joy. has a great emotional experience. But when uh, persecution arises because of the teaching of the word or the preaching of the word, uh, they fall away right away because they have no depth to their faith. It's all emotional. The other group, to see the falls on the thorny soil, well, the thorns represent the cares of this life, Jesus said. And these are folks that, okay, they want God, they want the happiness and joy that Jesus gives, but they love the world more than they love Jesus. And so eventually, because Jesus called us to a life of sacrifice, they don't want to let go of the world. And so the cares of this life choke out their young faith, and they never come to fruitfulness. Now, here's the thing, all right? What is the whole point of agriculture? Foliage or fruit? It's fruit, right? Didn't Jesus, what did Jesus say? You'll know them by their foliage? You'll know them by their fruit. There are people that come to church and look good for a while. They produce leaves, quote unquote. All right? Yeah, maybe they get into the whole Christian thing. They hang out with you guys. You guys are on fire for the Lord. So pretty soon they're walking in with the Jesus t-shirt, the 50-pound Schofield reference Bible under their arms. Their, their car's got all these Jesus bumper stickers. They look good, right? But God knows the heart. And God knows eventually, I mean, eventually they're going to fall away because they're never going to bear fruit. Fruit is always the truest indication of salvation. 
If a person is genuinely saved, the Spirit of God has come into their heart, and he begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit through their lives. You can't fake that, guys. You can't fake the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, you can put a facade on and make people think you're holy and all, but again, like a whitewashed tomb, you're playing games with God and he knows the truth. So the whole point, this, this whole thing could be applied to anyone who considers themselves to be a churchgoer or is a churchgoer and considers themselves to be a Christian. And yet there's outward forms of religion, but yet there's no real spiritual fruit. So verses 18 and 19 to me are pretty straightforward. The fig tree represents Israel. I get it. What I don't get is the application. Verse 20. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Of course, the next day they came and saw it had died. Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, what throws me concerning this passage is that after the disciples see that the fig tree that Jesus cursed a day earlier has now withered completely and died from the roots, and they point it out or bring it to Jesus' attention, what, what troubles me or what throws me is instead of Jesus saying, okay, guys, here's the deal. This fig tree represents the nation of Israel. The nation uh, is not bringing forth fruit just like this fig tree. Eventually, it's going to be cursed, withered, die, and removed from its land. That's what I would have expected the Lord to say, right? Instead, Jesus launches into a teaching on prayer. And I, I tell you what, I, you read that, I go, I can't see the correlation. Seems like two separate incidents, yet we know they're connected. See, the application seems completely unrelated to the incident. That is, until you take a couple of steps back and see the passage in its broader context. Remember that what precedes the cursing of the fig tree was the cleansing of the temple that we studied last time in verses 12 to 26, which itself was preceded by the triumphal entry at the beginning of Matthew 21. And we've already talked about that, how Jesus came to the nation on Palm Sunday proclaiming himself to be their Messiah, looking for spiritual fruit. He goes into the temple and sees religion without righteousness, just like the fig tree had leaves without fruit. Now, here's what link, I believe. Here's what links, I believe. The cursing of the fig tree with the lesson of prayer in verses 21 and 22. Notice how Jesus condemned the temple and its leaders earlier by saying these words. It is written, my house should be called a house of what? Prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. To me, guys... Prayer is one of the greatest forms of fruit that is produced from the lives of those who are genuinely saved. People can go to church. People can even read the Bible and not be saved. People can serve in ministry. There's a lot of folks who can stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, and he's going to say, I never knew you, and they're going to be shocked and say, well, didn't we serve you? Didn't we, weren't we in ministry? And so on. But I'll tell you this. You show me a person who is a prayer warrior, you show me a church that's full of prayer warriors that takes prayer seriously, and I'll show you a church of true believers in Christ. Because there's something about prayer, and that's why Jesus said the, the Father wants his house to be first and foremost a house of prayer. What is prayer? It's acknowledging our weakness, our total dependency on God, 
And allowing ours is the most selfless thing you can do. To give up of your time, especially in the day in which we live. Time is more valuable than money to some of us. It's the most selfless thing you can do to kneel by your bed or wherever you pray and pray for others consistently and faithfully. If that isn't the fruit of salvation, I don't know what is. I mean, prayer is powerful. Prayer is one of the weapons that God has given us to use to bring down spiritual strongholds of the devil. We know that Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, when he said the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. What are these weapons? Well, the only two I can think of is the word of God and prayer, which Paul doesn't even bother to list because it's so obvious. Okay? The word of God and prayer. But prayer is one of those weapons that God has given to us to pull down enemy strongholds. And the point is that the power of prayer was something the disciples were going to need to understand, going to need to learn about real quick, especially because Jesus was about ready to go to the cross, and that meant he was going to hand over the ministry he had begun to these men in just a very short time. And they would be, soon be facing the same persecution at the hands of the leaders of the nation that Jesus had faced. These leaders who were just as barren, spiritually speaking, as the fig tree was that Jesus cursed. In fact, we see that in the book of Acts. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in the book of Acts, Pentecost, chapter 2, spirit was poured out, church was born. Chapter 3, they're going into the temple to pray, and Peter sees a guy who's been lame for, his, for what, 40 years or something, and through the power of God, he heals this guy. Guy starts taking laps around the temple there, and, you know, and draws quite a, a, a crowd, and, and so they got called into the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Council. And they knew this guy had been lame. For, nobody could argue that a great miracle had not taken place. And at one point, they commanded that these men no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ. To which Peter responded, look, whether we should obey God or you, you decide. We cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. And what did they do? They went back to the other disciples in Acts 4, and they held a prayer meeting. And they prayed, God, we pray that you would grant us boldness to continue to speak your word in truth and god responded by shaking the place that they were assembled and they were filled once again with the holy spirit and went forth in power look the cursing of the fig tree was going to be a part of their ministry in the sense that they would have to curse not only proclaim god's truth but condemn and curse the lies of the devil which the whole system of judaism had become one big lie that's what got John the Baptist in trouble. That's what got Jesus in trouble. And that's what got the disciples, the apostles in trouble. That they preached the truth, yes. But they also condemned the devil's lies. Look, we're living in a very tolerant age. Aren't People are tolerant of everything but the truth. Okay? They're tolerant of everybody but us who represent the true God. But if you're going to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, it's not just about teaching the truth, it's condemning the lies as well. A lot of churches that will teach the truth but stay away from condemning error because it's too negative. You know? I don't want to, we don't want to be seen as a negative church. Well, you know what? I don't see the word negative or positive in my Bible. It sounds like electricity to me. I see truth in my Bible. I see error in my Bible. And I'm, I'm, I see that we're commanded as God's people to speak the truth and come against error. Uh, if that makes me unpopular, so be it. But if I'm going to do what God's called me to do and speak out against evil, 
I better be willing to take the heat. Talk to Phil Robertson, okay? Duck down to the family, all right? He's taking heat for speaking the truth. Now, he could have done it maybe in a little kinder way, but the core of what he said, I agree with. And he's taking a lot of heat, hasn't he? Now, if we're going to stand up and be faithful stewards of Jesus Christ and speak the truth and condemn error, we had better know the power of prayer in our lives. We had better know what it means to kneel in his presence continually, faithfully to draw strength from each day that we not waver. And that's what I feel was the bottom line here of the lesson that Jesus was teaching through the cursing of the fig tree and then teaching on the power of prayer. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole teaching on prayer and what Jesus said in these verses because it's almost identical to a teaching he gave earlier in Matthew 17, verse 20. And so if you're interested, get the CD of that study because we went into this in more detail. But I will just say this briefly. Let's, let's read verse 21 again. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. Again, talking about the power of God for any work of God. Now listen to me. This is not talking, in my mind, it's not talking about a literal mountain. But listen, a mountain-like problem that God in his word has promised you victory and me victory over. Has God promises victory over bad habits of the flesh? Yes. Okay. Has God promises victory over the world? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of things in his word. God is a lot of mountaintop, or excuse me, not mountaintop, mountain-like problems that are too big for us. No, we're no match for them. But in the power of God, he'll sweep them to the side to allow us to march forward in the work he's called us to do. But listen, never did Jesus or any of his disciples ever command a literal mountain to be picked up and cast into the sea. I mean, that would be a pretty spectacular miracle, wouldn't it? But it would really serve no purpose except to thrill people, which Jesus never used his mighty power to do. He never used miracles to entertain people. Now, remember, one guy asked him to do a miracle to entertain him. Who was that? Herod, right? And Jesus Christ wouldn't even answer this guy. God never does miracles to thrill us. There's a lot of churches that seem to be all into miracles. And believe me, I, I believe in miracles. I'd love to see a miracle. But our church is not based on miracles. It's based on the Word of God. But there's a lot of churches that it's all about miracles. And a lot of times, and I'm not saying they, they see a lot of miracles. They think they do. But um, it's designed to entertain, to keep people coming back. But verse 22, he says, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've already talked about it earlier in Matthew's Gospel, but I don't believe this is a promise. That if we have enough faith or believe strongly enough, we can have whatever we pray for. I don't care how much faith you have, it doesn't put you in the driver's seat. I don't care how much faith a person has. It doesn't make them Lord and God their servant to do whatever they want him to do. I mean, all prayers got to pass through the grid of God's sovereign will. Remember what John said in his first epistle, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15? He said, now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know 
that we will have the petitions that we have asked of him. If it's God's will and we ask for it, if it's God's will, he's going to give it to us. Maybe not right there, maybe down the road uh, a week or a month or sometimes even several years. Sometimes it's just, it's yes, but not just now. But I don't care if it's not God's will, I don't care how much faith you have, it is not going to force God to do what you want as opposed to what he wants. And would we want that any other way? If his way is perfect, he knows best. If I could manipulate God somehow to do my will over his, would I really want that? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't. Because he knows what's best. I'd rather just leave it with him. Not my will, but your will be done, right? But I want you to remember this as we bring this to a close. The promise that Jesus gave here in Matthew 21, verses 21 and 2, about prayer and answered prayer, wasn't given to the multitudes in general, but given to his disciples in particular. And what was the criteria that he'd already laid down for being one of his disciples? That we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow in his footsteps. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow in Jesus' footsteps. The one who said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. See, a true disciple is not looking for Cadillacs and mansions and all kinds of goodies. A true disciple wants to do the work that Jesus began. He said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's the work. That's what he meant when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That was his heart. That's why he came. That's why we are here, to continue that work. And therefore, whenever Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I will make sure you get, that wasn't a carte blanche, write your name on the check and make out what you want to, you know, the amount. He was saying, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask the Father, if it's consistent with the way I've lived my life and the work that I have done, I'm going to make sure that you receive what you need. John 16, he said, up until this time, you've asked me nothing. This is now just hours before the cross. In fact, they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. They've left the upper room the night before the crucifixion. They're working their way through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to spend the rest of the night in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the work of the kingdom is on his mind, guys. I mean, he knows he's going to be turning over to them in just a short while. And that's the context. And so he said, up until this point, you've asked me nothing. But what I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Again, talking to disciples, talking about the work of the kingdom. Not like some pull this out of context and go, oh, see, Jesus told me I can have a Cadillacs and, and, and boats and everything and big mansions because, look, whatever I ask in his name, you know, you're not reading the passage right. All right, let me just finish by reading verse 21 again. Where Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And once again, I don't believe he's talking about a literal mountain. <laughs> Usually. I want to close with a true story that I've told before, but there's a lot of new faces, so bear with me if you've heard it. It's a story about one church that moved a literal mountain. By prayer and faith. So I got to hear this. Okay. It took place back in the 80s. I think it was in New Jersey. Okay. 
And there was a church that was growing, and so they, built, they bought a piece of property to build a new church on it. All well and fine. Had an architect come in, and they planned out the church and so on. When they took it to the city planning board, the city planning board said, you do not have enough land for parking. You have got to put in more parking if we're going to okay the size of the sanctuary. Well, now they were in a real dilemma. They had enough land for extra parking. The problem was there was a 30-foot bluff, a small mountain on top of a big portion of that land. They couldn't move it. They didn't have the, the money to have it excavated and taken away. So there it stood. And there was the quandary they were in. They had the land. Uh, the, the plans were drawn up for the new sanctuary. But a mountain was standing in their way on their own property. And so they prayed. And they trusted God. And I don't know how long they prayed. It might have been several weeks or even a few months. I can't remember. It wasn't years, but it was a, several weeks or a few months. One day they get a phone call from a representative of AT&T. It seems AT&T had, bought a big, had purchased a big piece of property across town that they wanted to build a new corporate center on. The problem was that uh, some of this land was, was low-lying. They needed to fill it in and bring it up to grade so they can build uh, their facility on there with their parking lot. The um, architect, whoever does these things, said, look, you can't just fill it in with any kind of soil. You have to, it has to be a combination of the right kind of soil, clay, and rocks. Actually gave them a kind of a formula to look for. Well, the AT&T dispatch people that went actually all over town looking for uh, areas in the, in the community that had this composition. You know where they found it? <laughs> the bluff that the church owned? The guy said to the pastor, Pastor, we have looked all over town and we found that your bluff has the exact uh, combination of dirt, clay, and stone that we need to fill in our land. How about if we were to haul it all away, grade it level, and give you a check for 5000 Would that be acceptable? Pastor said, come and get it. <laughs> so I guess when you say it's not a literal mountain Jesus is talking about here, I want to be careful about that, okay? Sometimes God will move. I mean, he didn't just pick it up like we thought, you know. He, he got rid of it. He picked it up and moved it, but in a way that, you know, sometimes we may not think of. But bottom line is, prayer is powerful. Don't let any mountain or problem stand in your way. You pray. You trust God. And if God is not going to move it out of the way, he'll rot away around it. But his work in your life will continue forward. Amen? All right, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which teaches us again that, Lord, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're right with you when maybe all we have is the leaves of religion in our lives but not the fruit of the Spirit. We're not genuinely saved. Give us grace, Lord, everyone here, to examine themselves honestly to make sure that they are genuine Christians. We don't want to hear anyone saying that here on the Day of Judgment, you say to them, I never knew you depart from me. And also, Lord, thank you for the lessons of prayer. Because, Lord, this world is antagonistic against you and those who belong to you. And, Father, we pray that you give us boldness, courage to speak your word with truth, not just the stuff that people want to hear, but the stuff they need to hear. And we just pray, Lord, that whatever mountains rise up in front of us, whatever enemy strongholds, whatever Goliaths that the devil puts in our path to hinder us or frighten us, we ask for the grace, Lord, that you would move that out of the way. 
that we can go forward in your power and strength to complete the work you've called us to do. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We know one thing, Lord. The enemy can fight his fight against us, but we're going to be victorious because you have promised us victory. So we thank you, Lord. And Father, we ask all these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.